continuing our journey through Exodus, uh, exploring what it means for us to be walking together with God. Um, now, today we're not going to be moving forward in the text. I know for those of you who've been around a while, um, we've been doing like a chapter or a half a chapter a week, and this has just been a breakneck pace, I know. We're all overwhelmed at how speedily we have been moving through um, the book of Exodus. Ben's had taking a wide-angle lens looking through um, looking through the book. So uh, today I thought, let's take some time to actually go back and zoom in a little bit more on chapter one. Specifically, we're going to look again at the story of Shifra and Pua. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, you might have remembered when we covered that passage for the first time. Um, I believe these women model for us what walking with God is like um, and that their story speaks to our reality all these years later. So if you have um, a Bible with you, either a paper copy or online, turn or scroll back to Exodus 1. And we're just going to read the whole chapter this morning. All right. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of the people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, uh, "Why have you?" Oh. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, "Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live?" Oh, I skipped a passage. I'm so sorry. I was like, "There's a critical part of this plot that I'm missing." We're gonna go back to verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, "When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him; but if it is a daughter, she shall live." But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the, summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All right, so let's, let's set the scene here. Um, Exodus opens with Israel provided for, sustained um, through the famine because of God's provision through Joseph. So God has worked to preserve the people and they're flourishing. They're fulfilling um, that Genesis language, right, of being fruitful and multiplying. This is good. Um, but then we're told, um, right as Exodus begins, that a new king, a new pharaoh enters the scene and, and he does not know Joseph. This is trouble. Uh, this new pharaoh is not named. He will not be given a name for the whole of Exodus. His successor will not be given a name. Um, he is just called the king or the pharaoh. He's generic. Um, he, he does not get a name because his names change every generation. Right? There is always a new the pharaoh, a new the king. This new pharaoh looks out at Israel's prosperity and grows fearful. He's drunk on power, and it's led to paranoia and anxiety as he projects his own greed and insecurity onto everyone else. You see power, capital P, power, sees the empowerment of others as a threat. It sees through the eyes of a zero-sum game, where for others to have more, it must mean that I have less. It does not trust in God's abundance, God's generosity, shalom. It does not trust that there is more than enough for all of us at the table. Power corrupts. It begets violence and oppression. It targets the community's flourishing and then ultimately will take aim at its very existence. And this new Pharaoh who does not know Joseph is in the grips of this power. So he decides to deal shrewdly with Israel, as he calls it. He institutes organized violence in the form of forced labor and servitude. When this doesn't destroy the other whom he's come to fear so much in his mind, uh, he and his people come to fear even more the Israelites. They, they come to experience dread. This dread makes them act out with even more violence. We're told multiple times that they act ruthlessly to make the people's lives bitter. But this is not enough to stifle the community because the potential imagined threat of the other, the one who threatens capital P power, it has to be completely neutralized. So the Pharaoh goes a step further. The, the other must be wiped out completely. Their existence, even if it's an impoverished existence, would testify to the reality that Pharaoh's uh, total control is, in fact, an illusion, a delusion. So the Pharaoh attempts genocide at the end of all this. And we read the most insidious of all, the Pharaoh enlists the community's own members to carry out his bidding. Not even the community's own members. The Pharaoh enlists the community's midwives. He wages vicious psychological warfare seeking to break the spirit of the people from the inside by targeting their midwives, their doctors, their counselors, their pastors, stewards of the sacred profession of ushering life from the womb into the world. 
Think of God forming creation out of, out of the watery darkness, the cosmic womb. Think of the intimacy between a woman and her midwife. They would have been friends, perhaps even sisters, to journey through the highly risky and dangerous process of giving birth. Midwives were guides. They were pastors through this dark valley. They occupied a central and respected place in their community. Blood, water, pregnancy, um, all of these were associated with the creative and life-giving power of God. Um, as such, the substances and states of blood, water, pregnancy were treated with very much care and caution. Midwives were a pillar of the community. And the Pharaoh, he goes to these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, who were likely the heads of all the midwives, right? These weren't the only two midwives um, birthing all of the, the children for the fruitful and multiplying Hebrews. They were certainly the heads of a much larger group. Um, but he goes to them, these two leaders, and orders them that as they guide and doctor their sisters through birth to murder their babies. The Pharaoh wages psychological and spiritual war against the community, and his target is the minds, the bodies, and the relationships between women, as well as their baby boys. The women of this oppressed people will bear the trauma and horror of pregnancy loss, the committing and witnessing murder, and suffering betrayal in their most intimate relationships. At least, at least this is the plan that the Pharaoh intends. Um, but Despite the orders that he issues when he calls these two women to a direct audience with himself, uh, the Hebrews continue to grow. I wonder how long it took him to realize that his command was not being obeyed, um, that there was a problem. Did he even notice? Uh, or did he have some other bureaucrat or official watching over the Hebrew problem, right? Was it a month, a year that this went on? We don't know. Sooner or later, he calls back the midwives and questions them. Shifra and Pua are caught standing in the gap between enormous power and the vulnerability of their people. And that's a precarious position to be in. They have to be resourceful. Um, they have to be careful. They have to discern how to speak, how to negotiate, as do so many women in Scripture as do so many women today. Uh, they use the Pharaoh's cultural bias against him. Our text says that they tell him, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. Okay, the Hebrew word here translated vigorous is hayoth. This is the only time that this word occurs in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's a homophone for and almost certainly related to the word Hayah, which is wild animal. The Hebrew women are brutish. They're animalistic, Pharaoh. Shifra and Pua slip through the Pharaoh's fingers by reflecting his own prejudice and bias back at him. We could say that they're wise as serpents and innocent as doves, to quote Jesus in Matthew 10. The Pharaoh does not speak to these women again. They leave his presence unscathed and with divine favor. And the Pharaoh has perhaps learned not to trust the women to carry out his dirty work. He has to enlist his own people to do his evil bidding. 
The Hebrew community refuses to be torn asunder. It is safeguarded and protected by the resistance of its women. Shifra and Pua are the first two of 12 women, 12, important number, um, they're the first two of 12 women who feature prominently in the first two chapters of Exodus to carry Moses through to his calling. So Shifra and Pua are the first, then we have Yohaved, then Miriam, then Pharaoh's daughter, then Zipporah, and Zipporah's six sisters. Moses' beginning, the beginnings of Israel's deliverer, is the story of the women who deliver and make a way for him. Shifra and Pua are the mothers of a revolution that is waged by women. They are the first deliverers in the book of deliverance. Uh, before we go further, uh, as I've been reading this passage over the last few weeks, um, the parallels between this account and the accounts, um, the history of African-Americans forced into slavery in North America and the Caribbean between the 15th and 19th centuries, uh, the parallels between these stories have just been jumping off the page. Uh, the paranoia of those in power, uh, attempted suppression and, and annihilation, increasing dread, ruthlessness, attempting to turn communities in on themselves and against themselves, breaking up families, and the execution of violence on male and female bodies in gender-specific ways, um, just some parallels, right? This story has repeated itself many times in history, in our history. The resilience, the risk, the sacrifice of those who've stood in the gap for their communities also rings out. And we see that the evolving tactics used by power, the siren song of more power, and, and where and for whom God shows up also rings out. Uh, we can learn something from Shifra and Pua. We're told in the face of enormous power and threat and given a command to do violence that the midwives feared God they do not do as the Pharaoh commands them and let the boys live. And then when questioned about this, they lie to the Pharaoh's face. Um, Shifra and Pua are models of Christian virtue um, in many ways, but because this is a sermon, I will offer us three. So first, Shifra and Pua model wisdom. We're told in Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Shifra and Pua fear God. They are wise. Right? This fear of the Lord means deference, respect. Shifra and Pua look and read their times with an eye to what is true, what is good, what is noble, what is just. What leads to flourishing wholeness? What leads to shalom in our community? What is tov? What is good in our community? What is in alignment with God's will for life and love? Shifra and Pua start before anything else. They start with wisdom. And in the same breath that the text tells us that Shifra and Pua are wise, it tells us that they disobey the king. So number two, they model courage. Shifra and Pua are wise and they take action. Risky action, action that has consequences, good consequences, but also potentially terrible consequences. 
They're courageous. Their values and virtues and reasoning doesn't reach to the inside of their skull and stop, right? It continues, it fleshes out through their hands and their feet. Their courageous action is actually the only possible result of their wisdom. The two are one and the same. They go hand in hand. Shifra and Pua are wise and courageous. Final one. Last but not least, Shifra and Pua model the virtue of scrappiness. Uh, these women lied to the king. They used the tools that they had. They used what they were given to make a way where there was no way to courageously move in the direction that their wisdom revealed to them. These women are subversive. They resist their community's dehumanization. In between a rock and a hard place with their backs against the wall, Shifra and Pua do what they need to do to protect their community. And this happens all the time in Scripture. And it might be confusing and even at times unpalatable to those of us who have had the luxury of not having to make such decisions from a similar place ourselves. The majority of people confessing Christ today live in the global south, in countries in the regions of Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. Most have histories of colonization and experience political mar marginalization globally. Many Latina women understand scripture and interpret it in light of La Codiciana, the everyday. They read scripture with an eye to its immediate relevance to help them navigate their day-to-day -day concerns to assist their communities. Their theology is not a speculative armchair theology. Neither was the theology of the Hebrews. Um, regarding this passage, the Oxford Bible commentary, of all commentaries to be saying this, um, has to say, the midwife's lie is not disapproved of. The Old Testament seems to reflect the moral sense of ordinary people, not moral philosophers. But, you know, we've had two millennia of theologians and moral philosophers thinking on the ethics of situations like this, so certainly much more could be said, has been said, much ink has been spilt around this. Um, and perhaps it's worth our time to briefly take an aside to, to think about that, um, right? We have to think about the fact that Shifra and Pua's resistance includes lying and that God is not concerned with this at all. Um, I suppose the Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet, um, just kidding, it's probably, it was probably still, we still need to take, uh, take care with it. Um, this raises some questions for us, right? Our brief aside will actually take us to someone who is as far removed from Shifra and Pua's location um, imaginable, at least, at least on, on the surface. Um, it takes us to a young German pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm remembering even this moment that I might have a slide for that. I'm so excited I remembered. Yes, we have a slide, okay. So uh, for those who are unfamiliar with him, just some information about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he grew up in incredible wealth and privilege in Germany, very educated, highly accomplished family, um, was one of the most brilliant upcoming theological minds of the 20th century. Um, but his pastoring and teaching took place within and immediately clashed with the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer repeatedly spoke against the Nazis. He refused to toe the line and agree with the German Christian church, which 
um, capitulated to Nazi ideology and ultimately was silent and complicit in the face of the Holocaust. Um, he instead was one of the founding members of the Confessing Church, uh, which openly defied the Nazis and was heavily persecuted for that reason. Bonhoeffer was given multiple options to leave Germany to escape, um, and at one point he even did leave for the United States for safety, but he only stayed two weeks before returning. His conscience told him that to do theology for his community, to pastor it through this evil time, he had to do it in and with this community. He helped hide Jewish people and get them to safety. He was even involved in a failed assassination attempt against Hitler. For his complicity, he was sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and then Flossenburg concentration camp, where he was executed in 1945, right as the Nazi regime was collapsing. He was 39 years old. Christian theologian and pastor, lying to authorities, attempting assassination, also a professed pacifist. Um, Lisa DeHill says, says this of his moral philosophy. As part of his lifelong suspicion of general principles, Bonhoeffer rejected attempts to categorize good and evil in some absolute or universally applicable way. Rather than knowledge of good and evil, the serpent's temptation in the garden. He insisted at the very outset of his ethics that what is to be sought is the will of God in the concrete situation of responsibility. Thus, the central theme of his life and resistance is that of mature Christian discernment. Maintaining personal innocence is not the point of Christian discernment. Effective and responsible action within history is. Um, man, we could, we, could, we could go... We could go into that, um, and he does for, for, for hundreds of pages. I, I would like to read just one small excerpt from, uh, from his ethics. This is a compilation of, um, of his theological thoughts over a span of years as he was going between monasteries, fleeing the Nazis, and then also um, from, from prison uh, eventually. A um, couple caveats before I read this passage. Okay. Um, Bonhoeffer is a 20th century German theologian. He uses lots of words. Um, and so for, for those of you who like, like this stuff, like this is for you. Um, for those of you who, who are like, what? Um, you're intelligent, okay? You're smart. He's just using lots of words. So don't, <laughs> it took me multiple, so just don't, don't be concerned. Um, one, one more caveat, he's going to quote Kant. Um, Kant is a moral philosopher who, whose uh, philosophy had much to do with sort of pure categories, pure good, pure evil, um, independent of context, right? These things are either always okay, always not pretty uh, black and white rigid binaries. So he's going to take issue with that. Okay, here's the quote. From the principle of truthfulness, Kant draws the grotesque conclusion that I must even return an honest yes to the inquiry of the murderer who breaks into my house and asks whether my friend whom he is pursuing has taken refuge there. In such a case, self-righteousness of conscience has become outrageous presumption and blocks the path of reasonable action. Responsibility is the total and realistic response of man to the claim of God and of our neighbor. 
But this example shows that in its true light, how the response of a conscience which is bound by principles is only a partial one. If I refuse to incur guilt against the principle of truthfulness for the sake of my friend, if I refuse to tell a robust lie for the sake of my friend, if I, in other words, refuse to bear guilt for charity's sake, then my action is in contradiction to my responsibility, which has its foundation in reality. Here again, it is precisely in the responsible acceptance of guilt that a conscience which is bound solely to Christ will best prove its innocence. Okay. Bearing guilt for charity's sake. What Christ does. Maintaining personal innocence is not the point of Christian discernment. Effective and responsible action within our concrete situation of history is. Bonhoeffer wrote this. Um, he lived by it, like Schiffer and Pua and countless others have, and he died by it, as many martyrs have. So, acting in wisdom, courage, and obedience to the will of God's love, discerning what is needed in this concrete situation of responsibility. Shifra and Pua have the virtue of scrappiness. Um, now, while we have much to learn from these women individually, absolutely, um, at a larger collective level, Shifra and Pua are actually representative, they're emblematic of women who stand in the gap for their communities throughout history. We cannot take them out of their context. We see their legacy in the women who seek justice in marginal spaces, who make do with what they have. And so today I want to just highlight a few. Um, there are so many women who carry Schiffer and Pua's legacy. The vast majority are never named or never celebrated outside their communities. Um, but especially today, as we celebrate Black History Month this month, um, as we celebrate the culture and resilience of the African-American community um, while lamenting and repenting of the systemic and personal sins of racism and oppression, uh, it is right and good for us to elevate at least one, at least one today. So I'd like to share a little bit um, of, of Harriet Tubman's story. You might already be familiar, but um, I'd like to highlight it today as we consider the women that carry Shifra and Pua's legacy. And yeah, okay, great. Okay, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822. That's what we estimate. Slave births weren't really um, documented, so that's our estimate. Um, she had eight siblings, the youngest of whom was named Moses. Um, some of her siblings were sold to other masters and were never reunited with their family. When another slave owner tried to buy her youngest brother Moses, her mother writ hid him for a month with help from other slaves and other freedmen in the community. When the man seeking to buy him eventually came to the slave quarters to seize him, Ritz told him, you are after my son, but the first man who comes into my house, I will split his head open. So the man abandoned the sale. 
Harriet experienced vivid dreams and visions. She understood these as revelations from God. Uh, she was illiterate. She never read the Bible, but she knew the Bible stories from, from what writ would tell her. Um, she rejected the teaching of white preachers who urged slaves to be passive and obedient victims. She found guidance in the Exodus story, in the tales of God delivering the oppressed into freedom. Harriet escaped for the first time when she was in her 20s. She would not rest until her whole family was free. So she went back. Um, ultimately, she would go back for a total of 13 different missions to rescue 70 slaves, including Moses. Harriet would sing spirituals as coded messages to the slaves, and as she led fugitive slaves across the border to Canada, she would sing, glory to God and Jesus too. One more soul is safe. Slaveholders in the region never expected that the small, five-foot-tall disabled slave who had ran away years before was responsible for so many escaped slaves in their community. They believed that a northern white abolitionist was responsible. During the Civil War, she, led an armed, she was an armed scout and spy for the Union Army. She was the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. The Union Army employed escaped slaves without pay because they considered them contraband property from the South. So Harriet donated two years of her leadership to the Union Army, liberating another 750 people in the process. In her later years, she was an activist for women's rights. She struggled with poverty and spent her final years in the rest home that she herself had earlier funded for elderly people of color. In all of her rescue missions, Tubman never lost one person who came with her. She was famously nicknamed Moses. Or perhaps we can look at a modern day example. Um, we could look over to the Masa Amini protests and revolution that is being fought for over in Iran. Since the Iranian revolution in 1979, Iranian women have been required to cover their hair completely with a hijab. Enforcement of this law um, was more lax between 2013 and 2021, but it intensified in 2021 with the new regime. Um, current estimates are that three-fourths of Iranians oppose the mandatory hijab law. In September of last year, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, was arrested by the guidance patrol, the numerality police, for not wearing her hijab properly and was beaten and received a fatal head injury. News of her death sparked protests that spread throughout the country. And these protests have uh, had solidarity protests around the world. They've been incredibly diverse. Um, they've grown to include demands for increased rights for women and even the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. They've been called the biggest challenge to the Iranian government since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. At least 488 people, including 64 minors, have been killed as a result of government pushback. That number's current as of January 27th of this year. It's certainly higher now. It's included public hangings. The Iranian government's disinformation campaign has included fake interviews, um, threatening families of the deceased, covering up deaths as accidents or suicides. Nearly 20,000 people have been arrested. Women and schoolgirls have played a key role in starting and leading these demonstrations. Iran ranks 143rd 
out of 146 countries in the WEF gender gap report. And here are these women and those who stand with them in the gap, seeking life and wellness for their community. It's important that we remember our place um, <clears throat> because yes, Shifra and Pua embody virtues that we ought to seek to emulate, but their story is also their own. It's embedded in their community. It's a story about Israel, an oppressed people <clears throat> in a strange land. They're an ethnic minority on the margins, sojourners on the underside of power. Scripture is written for the church and the church is a global community spanning continents and millennia. And the church, except where it entangles itself with governments in power despite being so clearly warned not to do this, um, the church is largely a community of the weak, the poor, the least of these. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Scripture is written from the vantage point of and for communities on the margins. And today, the majority of Christians globally are those with poor, brown, and black female bodies. This story is the church's story, and it is their story. So let us not be myopic and forget where we sit in relation to this globally. So my question for us today, as we sit in our places globally, so to speak, of, of comfort and ease, right, comparably, um, not to say that we don't have our own struggles, 100%, um, but, but when we look at the wide-angle lens of how we're situated, my wondering for us is, do we see these communities that are stuck between a rock and a hard place? Do we see our brothers and sisters globally who are in pain? Do we see them around the world, right? There's so much in the news. Do we look with compassion and concern? We're told that God heard the cries of Israel. God saw, God remembered. Do we hear? Do we see? Do we remember our sisters and brothers around the world? Do we hear those in our own backyard? Do we hear the cries of the women whose Brothers and fathers and husbands are taken and forced to do hard labor in our prisons. Almost a quarter of the world's prison population is in American prisons. A quarter. Do we hear the cries of women whose sons and husbands are beaten and killed by those charged to protect them? Do we see Shifra and Pua? Do we see the women who stand in the gap and fight for the life of their communities amidst scarcity, poverty, trauma, oppression? Do we see them far away? Do we see them right at home? What is our effective and responsible action within our concrete moment of history? There is one last character that we cannot overlook in this part of the Exodus story. Because we learn that after Shifra and Pua's defiance and Yohaved's hope 
and Miriam's tact that another woman comes in and contributes her part to deliver this people. The Pharaoh's daughter is going to bathe in the river with her attendants. These Hebrew problems are not on her mind, right? She is just doing as her lot has afforded her. But up washes a baby, and she sees him, and we're told she takes pity. She has compassion. And so she moves to help. She's now in a dubious ethical space, right? She incurs guilt. She steps out of innocence. She takes effective and responsible action in her concrete moment, just like each of these women has. She joins in their work from her place, and she too becomes the deliverer of Israel. There are ways globally and locally that we can do as she does. We can donate to organizations that resource and aid those who stand in the gap. We can gift our money, our time, our resources, our talents. We can give these communities a platform. We can say their names. We can ask them and ask ourselves what needs to change for these communities to flourish. We can make their concerns our concerns. Shifra and Pua are named in scripture. The Pharaoh they stand against is not. They are exemplars of Christian virtue. They show us that real theology happens on the streets, in our communities, walking with God. They take what they've got, they seek wisdom, they act with courage and grit to preserve and prosper their people. They deliver them, acting as the life-ushering and life-protecting hands of God. Do we see these women today? Do we stand with the God who blesses their work? Do we defend them when our pharaohs try to compromise them? What will we do when our pharaohs instead try to enlist us? And during Black History Month, in light of our nation's sinful history of exploitation and oppression, do we acknowledge that the Exodus story is our story too? May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to walk with God in wisdom, courage, and scrappiness as these women have modeled for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the testimony of those um, who go before us, of those in our community who stand with courage. God, we pray that um, as we walk with them, as we walk with you, uh, that we would be emboldened um, that we would see anew, that our hearts would, would break with yours as we walk with you as your people. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would give to each of us what we need to hear and that you would continue to empower and equip our community to be your hands and feet, to love our neighbors. And I pray for your people um, around the world who suffer 
who are caught in, in marginal spaces. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and that you um, would empower us to act courageously to stand in solidarity with them. We thank you for this time and ask for your blessing as we go from this place after we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.